Well, thank you, everybody, so much for joining us. It is the 16th of May, 2010. And yes, indeed, we are 10 days past the third year anniversary of me quitting my cushy, well-paid executive software gig to yell at my computer full time. Uh, who would have guessed it would be a paid gig? Uh, there are many people who yell at their computers every day. Uh, I'm just very glad that this yelling is productive for you all. And thank you so much for subscribers and donators for keeping this essential conversation afloat. Uh, and if you haven't donated for a while, and I hate to ask, but uh, the recession doth grind on. And as I'm sure you're aware, the uh, the two biggest sources of my donations are America and England, who have been the most hard hit by the recent recession. So if, and of course, it's not like FDR, um, it's not like this show appeals to a lot of the people who still have jobs, i.e. government workers. If you have any extra cash floating around, uh, I would hugely, hugely appreciate it. And uh, I uh, I look forward to hearing from you, and I look forward to your donations at freedomainradio.com forward slash donate dot ASPX. Hey, isn't that a user-friendly domain? We should probably make that a little bit more friendly. Uh, gimme, gimme, gimme dot com, perhaps. Anyway, so I hope you're doing fabulously. A wonderful week uh, I hope you had. Uh, this week up here was good. Uh, I did some work on some videos. Thank you. I also wanted to put a thank you out to the tireless workers uh, and uh, linguistic experts who are giving me uh, just wonderful translations of my videos, which uh, I have a German version of The Matrix. We have. I'm just about to upload a Spanish version of the story of your enslavement, which has pushed over 100,000 views in a little under two weeks, which I really uh, think is great. And thank you, everybody, who has um, uh, helped promote that video. It's getting a lot of feedback, and I, uh, I appreciate that. It's getting a lot of good feedback, a lot of views, so I appreciate that. And at least I hope that um, I hope that the translations are good. I don't really have any way of telling, um, so hopefully they're not. Uh, uh, please accept the uh, gizzards of my firstborn in payment for your donation or something like that. So uh, hopefully that's not the case. And uh, up here, yeah, things are, things are great. Izzy is progressing marvelously and magically. She has just started uh, to sound out letters. Uh, F.U. Uh, seems to be quite particular. No, it, uh, uh, she's just started to sound out letters. Uh, I have been uh, uh, talking with a, another libertarian. We, we'd like to do a show on parenting, and uh, he made the suggestion that uh, I teach her the phonetic alphabet. You know, so instead of A, B, C, D, E, F, G, uh, you go, which I think is actually a pretty good uh, idea. So you teach the sounds that the letters make rather than the names of the letters uh, because it doesn't do much good for a child to look at uh, the letter cat and say c-a-t but if you say c-a-t then they can make the word uh, much more easily so that is uh, i haven't really spent much time teaching her the alphabet as in the abc but i've really worked hard to give her the alphabet in the g format and that is um that is, uh, seems to be paying off. So she's just thought we've got some flashcards and cool stuff like that, which she really seems to enjoy. And uh, so she's just starting to sound out, you know, the letter W and the letter S and the letter C and so on. So K, W, S and so on, which is really uh, just unbelievably cool. Uh, she is, I guess, two days shy of going into her 17th month uh, or being 17 months old. So uh, that is, uh, is just fantastic. Um, a shout out to uh, Wilton Alston, who is a, a writer for Lou Rockwell, uh, who was up here in Mississauga uh, for a marathon. And uh, I was a bit confused because when he said marathon, I thought he just meant listening to all the FDR podcasts. But 
apparently, and I did look this up uh, on Wikipedia, there are other kinds of marathons, uh, and he's running one. So uh, he is uh, uh, in excellent shape. Uh, I did not offer to arm wrestle him, and uh, he was kind enough to carry me up the stairs uh, to the restaurant. So we had a, a bite, which was uh, great, and it was really, really nice to meet him. And if you get a chance to check out his uh, writing, he is a very, very good writer, uh, in my opinion. He is uh, he's very good at colloquial writing, uh, which is certainly not my area of expertise, you know. So he writes like he speaks, and I think that is a really interesting thing. So it's sort of like a transcript of somebody who's just chatting with you, and I think that's a really challenging way to write. It's something that I quite envy, and he's a really good writer. And he has dozens and dozens of um, of articles on Lou Rockwell, so you might want to check those out. Uh, he's well, well worth reading. And uh, so it's Wilt Alston, W-I-L-T-A-L-S-T-O-N. So I hope that you will uh, you will check him out. And uh, actually, it's, it's uh, nice. I've got some listeners rolling through, so I'm going to have a bite to eat with a listener on Tuesday as well. And, uh, you know, if you listen to the show and you're passing through Toronto, you know, feel free to uh, to give me a shout. And uh, if it's at all possible, uh, perhaps we can meet for a drink. Uh, I always love to meet uh, to meet listeners. I really do. You guys are are wonderful, and uh, I have never had <laughs> an encounter with a listener that didn't leave me feeling uh, buoyed, optimistic, enthusiastic, and very happy. So uh, do let me know if you're coming by, and uh, we can uh, sit down and uh, chew their fattle. All right. So um, I'm not going to do any kind of a big intro other than to say uh, I am uh, doing some work on uh, uh, a historical piece. I would like to do a, uh, a short documentary uh, on uh, the, uh, the causes of the First World War. I know that may sound a little esoteric, but um, most of the issues that we face as a culture and as a civilization today can be traced directly back to World War One, and World War One was the complete turning point of uh, human history and produced the uh, slaughterhouse of the 20th century, destroyed vast portions of my family on both the British and the German side. And uh, it is something that uh, has always uh, been profoundly uh, moving for me emotionally. And uh, I've been doing some very interesting research into the causes. And I think you really can't understand the modern world unless you understand the First World War and, uh, and what happened thereafter. Uh, and really look at the First World War and the Second World War as the suicide of Western civilization as it stood in the 19th century, as it stood post-Renaissance, post-Enlightenment. It was the suicide of reason through statism. And uh, uh, it uh, it really was a 30-year war with a 20-year armistice. Uh, and uh, it really is uh, very fascinating to look at what happened and how and why. And I also, of course, am looking to detonate some of the myths of the good war. You know, like the First World War is generally considered a pointless bloodbath, but the Second World War was the fight against fascism and so on, and uh, is often cited as the reason why we need governments and national defense. And that, of course, is all pure nonsense. Even Winston Churchill called it the unnecessary war. So uh, I wanted to uh, do that. It's going to take a little bit of work, and I appreciate your patience uh, as I work my way through that. But I think it's very, very important to understand. I mean, the First World War laid the grounds for statism as we know it, and uh, and incidentally destroyed uh, almost the identical amount of wealth that had been generated from the late 18th century through the Industrial Revolution was almost completely destroyed by the First World War, and uh, Western civilization started from scratch, but with an enormous number of dependents on the state through the wounded and the pensioners. Uh, and the the, pen, the the war widows and so on, uh, the government could never, ever return to its 19th century size after the First World War. So I think it's really, really important to understand. And uh, so I appreciate your patience as I'm sort of piecing that together. Uh, it will take a little while, but I think it will be 
uh, it will be very important. And I hope to give people some sense of uh, where we came from and, and how it happened. So, All right. Uh, oh, don't, rem- don't forget, I'm going to be at Porkfest, uh, which is uh, June 24th. I think I'm speaking at 6 p.m. Thursday. And I hope to stay for a couple of days. Uh, we'll, we'll see. I'm still sort of working out the details. And uh, I hope to see you there uh, if you're able to make it. And thank you so much, uh, Richard, for being able to come down and video uh, after the debacle with the, um, uh, with the uh, debate with Badnarik. Uh, I'm really looking forward to having some good quality video. And I really appreciate that. Uh, so I'm glad that you're coming down. All right. But enough. Enough about me. Let's get to the real brains of the outfit, which would be you right there, sitting right there, listening now. So if you'd like to have any comments, questions, issues, criticisms, problems, whatever you like, I am all yours. I just have one non-brainy thing to sort of throw out there. Yeah. Um, For people who are coming to uh, the barbecue Mm -hmm. um, uh, around Labor Day. If you're able to make it and you're interested in group rates, I have already started to bid. You know, I, I submitted a request for bids, but uh, if you are still interested in group rates, you know, there's a, a thread in the general information forum. Uh, just go there, you know, put your interest, and then we can make sure that we – and when we're negotiating with whoever it is, um, we don't know – I don't know yet. When I'm negotiating with whoever, whoever it is for block of rooms, you know, we have a good number of uh, people who are going to come by. So that's – I just want to throw that out there. It's been a week, and so I'm hoping to make a decision or you know, share the decision-making if I, if I need to with uh, the rest of the group uh, at the end of this week. So that's it. Yeah, and I just wanted to follow up what uh, James – thanks, James, so much for, for organizing all of that. I really just want to follow up and make a pitch. Uh, come. Uh, you, you will remember it for the rest of your life. Uh, it is a fantastic time. Uh, I think I can speak for everyone here, and of course, if you've come and hated it, then let me know. But everybody seems to have had an absolutely wonderful time. It is a relaxed and benevolent and enjoyable and rational and entirely too much fun uh, time. Uh, we have sing-alongs. We go to karaoke. We, uh, we eat good food. We have good conversation. And, of course, it is an environment where uh, your, uh, your beliefs won't cause you any trouble. I mean, in a sense, no matter what they are, because we're all going to bow to reason and evidence. So uh, please, uh, if you can come and, uh, you know, we, uh, I, I will provide uh, the food and the drink. Uh, that's something that I just carve off the donation uh, list as my way of saying thank you to everybody. So uh, it's about it's going to be one of the cheapest vacations and uh, I think one of the best vacations you might have. So uh, I hope that you will be able to come by, even if it's just for a little while. I would really, really uh, I would really, really uh, encourage that. So if you get a chance, great. All right, so questions, comments, issues. Crowd my ears, my brethren and sistren. Hello? Hello. Hey, uh, hey, Steph. Um, I had a couple of really interesting uh, discussions this week in the chat room, and uh, they all thought that it was kind of valid and I should bring it up to you. Um, because basically, recently this week and this past two weeks, um, I've been discussing with my uh, economics professor and my English professor this whole idea, your you know, amazing theories on uh, economics and uh, on in general about the state and stuff like that. And um, he's been the English professor has been uh, making us watch documentaries. One of them called the Corporation. I'm not sure if you're if you know about that one. Uh, um, I've heard of it. One. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, if I remember rightly, sorry to interrupt, if I remember rightly, it is the analysis of a corporation using DSM-4 mental health 
criteria yeah. and uh, yeah, I think the results well. is that the corporation is deemed sociopathic in its uh, intentions and actions? Yeah, but at the same time, they bring in a lot of very interesting points about corporations in general, which, I, which I'm going to bring into my discussion. And also my economics professor, uh, who, based on your talk, should be completely, you know, pro-free and free market all the way, no, no uh, government interference and all that. And he just completely attacks me like crazy. He's, you know, he doesn't like your uh, theories on this at all. Um, and basically, the, between the two of them, they, I wanted to discuss what they're saying. So basically, what they're trying to bring up is that there are a few issues with the free market. Um, it, it, all of them, you know, kind of, of pro-free market at, in some way. Because, you know, capitalism right now is probably the best thing that we have. And, and no one's disagreeing with that. But the thing is that... Um, you know, unrestrained free market um, ideas is just not what any of them agree with because they think that there has to be some sort of a control. Some, I think you brought that up too. You want it to be some sort of insurance of some sort, but some sort of checks and balances or some sort. But basically, they say, based on proof, because nowadays we have kind of the most, I know we still have the state and all that, but we have a lot, a lot of free market going on, and we see based on the evidence about how that works, what happens when there are kind of limited controls or no controls, and based on that, we can kind of decide whether we should keep those controls or let them do their thing because the, the thing is that government has over completely no regulation is that at least now there's some sort of accountability of course that accountability you know if you give if you give the managers you know completely uh, you know you let a market become the managers of, of the free market that's going to be really bad as we see right now basically the state is some sort of like they do with their thing and they don't really care what we say even though they call it democracy but as you're saying you know you're trying to give a better idea for a some sort of a controller you to be feedback, whatever it was, um, which is great, but the point is that there has to be some sort of a constraint, some sort of control to make sure that there's going to be some sort of accountability, because if we just let it be completely privatized, what happens is that it's owned by that company, and we have no say at all, because no matter how many people, you know, want to have some sort of a change in the company, like in oil or wherever, whatever it is, then they'll say, go get out of here, it's my company. Of course, you know, we have some sort of other control based on, um, you know, we can say we're not going to buy from them, whatever, but the point is that we can't have any say if it's completely privatized. Um, another thing is that... I'm sorry, um, wait, 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 sorry. I, I don't want sure. to... I, I want to deal with the issues as they come up, uh, if that's all right, so... Sure. Uh, let me just give you a short response. Uh, if you could just mute for a sec because there's a bit of static coming from your side, I'll tell you uh, what I would say to this professor. And look, if your professor wants to come on and debate, please uh, tell him I would be more than happy to to give him a chance to air his views uh, and debate with him. Yeah. So uh, invite that. Uh, so look, this idea that we need control over private capitalist organizations is – so completely irrational that th – I mean this is why – people are so irrational in this area that this is why I started looking at family stuff because there's just no way that anybody could look at a blank page of any kind of logical diagram and say the following. We need control over social institutions and so let's create one social institution, arm it to the fucking teeth, have it – able to steal at will and imprison the population 
and the population has zero control, economically at least, over this entity. And so we need to create an entity which is completely involuntary and all-powerful and has complete control over the, over the citizenship. And we need to create this entity because there are social agencies that the citizens are afraid of not having control over. I mean, that is just so completely insane that no rational human being with more than four and a half brain cells to rub together would ever come up with that as a solution. It's mm -hmm. like saying, I'm afraid of dating, so I want to get raped. I mean, that just makes no sense at all, right? So, so that's the okay. first thing that I would say. The, the human beings, citizens, have no control over the all-powerful government. So the idea that we create a government in order to control dangerous social institutions like free market companies is insane. Because the huge difference between me dealing with some local grocery store is that if I don't like that grocery store, I don't have to do a goddamn thing. I don't have to get off my couch. I don't have to take my finger out of my nose or my other hand off the remote, let's say. I don't have to move a muscle or take a breath if I don't like the grocery store down the road because I just won't go there. So in action, going about my day is a everything that you do in a free market that is not involved in giving money or time or services to a particular organization is a complete vote against every other corporation in the world, right? So if I go out and I buy an iPad, that is a vote against every other $600 worth of consumption that I could have made. So I'm voting for an iPad. I'm voting against every other possible use of that money, including saving it. And so I don't have to do anything if I don't approve of a particular corporation. On the other hand... With the government, if you don't agree with what the government does, you're fucked. You're completely and totally if, – if you don't like what the government does, what are you going to do? Well, you have to go marching. You have to try and get into office. You have to spend a lot of money. You have to risk going to jail if you don't want to pay your taxes. In other words, the government compels you to obey and the cost of disobedience is unbelievably high to the point where most people, and I think reasonably so, just won't risk it. On the other hand, if I don't agree with what some corporation is doing, I don't have to do anything. I can just sit there and suck up the Doritos dust from my chest as I continue to watch another season of Lost. <laughs> I don't have to do anything. And this, this difference between positive and negative action is something that people don't understand. The idea of creating a monopoly of violence in order to solve a multiplicity of voluntarism is completely mad. And I'll just give one, one very brief point, and then I want to get on to your next point, if that's okay. The next thing that I would say is there's this bizarre belief that corporations have something to do with the free market. That corporations exist somehow wildly independent of the government, and the corporations are the spawn of the free market. They're the spawn of voluntarism, and they are controlling the government and bribing the government and influencing the government and all this, that, and the other. And that is all complete ahistorical, propagandized nonsense. I mean, you couldn't jam more bullshit up somebody's vocal cords if you had a plunger. If they think wow. that corporations have anything to do with the free market. Corporations are state-created and state-controlled ways of avoiding legal liability for your economic decisions. So if you have a corporation and your corporation does well, you take all the money. 
If you, you have a corporation and your corporation does something stupid or illegal or dangerous or harms people, then the corporation gets sued and you don't get touched. So, for instance, right, there's this, this terrible Gulf oil spill uh, or this oil leak that's going on at the moment that's just completely disastrous uh, and, uh, mm-hmm. and is going to have effects on the ecosystem of the Gulf for probably years, if not decades to come. I mean, it's, it's completely catastrophic. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> first of all, I mean, there's a ho- I don't want to go into the whole thing about this because it's, it's a big topic. I might do a true news on it. But first and foremost, I mean, you have to look at everything that happened. To, why the fuck are they drilling 400 miles b- below the earth, b- below the surface of the sea? Well, because according to environmental regulations, they're really not allowed to drill on land. Also, why are we still so dependent on oil? It's because the U.S. government spends so much money propping up corrupt dictatorships in return for oil. I mean, they got, what, how many tens of thousands of troops stationed in Saudi Arabia? propping up that dictatorship to get access to oil. If none of that was occurring, the price of oil would be higher or there would have already been reforms in Saudi Arabia and other countries that they prop up through U.S. militarism. There would have been reforms that would have lowered the price of oil by introducing more competition in free market. But by propping up all these oil-based dictatorships, the U.S. is artificially Mm -hmm. driving up the price of oil and is reducing the incentives for other people uh, to drill. And so this is why they end up now – the government uh, does not require the backup systems. The U.S. government does not require the backup systems that might have contained this spill. But, but finally and most importantly, do you think that one goddamn oil executive is going to lose his house over this? I mean, if I crash into someone's car without insurance, I'm going to lose my house because, you know, assuming they get like, injured or whatever, right? They're going to take my house. I don't think that's mm-hmm. unfair. But these oil executives, they hide behind this legal shield called a corporation. Mm-hmm. And they don't get any personal exposure to the actions of that corporation. You can't go after their houses. You can't go after their assets. And so when they're weighing the calculations about whether to spend another half million dollars because they're drilling at the bottom of the ocean because of all these other government regulations, they're weighing that decision. There's no personal stake in that decision. I mean, to some degree, I wish that, that's a bit of an overstatement. I mean, they, they, they may want to keep working. They may want to keep their jobs. They might lose their jobs. But their personal assets, the people at the top who are making these decisions are already worth millions of dollars. They have more than enough money to live on for generations if they want. And there's no personal stake in any of that. So they make these decisions knowing that if there's a catastrophe, it's not going to touch their personal wealth. It's mm-hmm. completely insane. It's like I have I have a fictional friend, and if I do anything good, I get all the benefits. And if I do anything bad, it's my fictional friend who goes to jail, and I just get to make up another fictional friend if I want. Well, if we had that occurring among citizens, if you could just invent your own personal little alternate corporation hand puppet, and if anything went wrong, you said, no, no, talk to the hand puppet, I mean, we wouldn't have a functioning system at all if that's how it worked at a personal mm-hmm. level. But this is how it works at a corporate level, and it has nothing to do with the free market. I guarantee you there would be no such thing as a corporation in a free market. A corporation is an entirely state-generated entity, and it's a way that the government buys the votes of rich people and gets their donations is by giving them legal immunity from the negative consequences of their bad decisions, and that's what a corporation is. It's a bribe to the upper classes to excuse them from the liability of doing disastrous things like screwing up the entire ecosystem of the Gulf with 12 billion barrels of oil. 
So, but if it was a free market, then they'd still mess up the bottom of the thing. Fine, there wouldn't be a uh, corporation to back them up, but they wouldn't have a government to go and attack them with all these laws and things about how they can't do it. As long as they own that land or whatever it is, they'll go drill and mess up the whole world you know, for all they care. Well, no, because in order to, I mean, in a DRO society, right, if, if I wanted to go and drill at the bottom of the ocean, the DRO, mm-hmm. would, there would be all this insurance, right, that, that I would have to buy. And in order to buy that insurance, I would have to prove, in order to get that insurance, I would have to prove to whatever organization that would be responsible for paying out that insurance, I would have to prove to that organization that it was as safe as humanly possible. And this this fuck up in the Gulf wasn't even remotely as safe as humanly possible. BP is going to end up paying one one thousandth of the costs of the cleanup. One one thousandth of the cost of the cleanup. And no executives, I guarantee you, no executives are going to be personally liable for one thin dime of that catastrophe. It's all going to get stuck to the taxpayers. That would never happen in the free market because there are no taxpayers in the free market. Okay, so you're just changing the government for DRO, but but the point that I'm trying to make is it has nothing uh, to do with uh, DRO. Uh, yeah. uh, wait, wait, sorry, what did you say? Sorry. What did you just say? You're you're changing you're changing the the check and balances um, from the government who have they're basically like a mafia of some sort that that we think are democratic, etc. But there are sorry, there are no should... checks and balances in the government. There is only excuses and Correct. predation. There, the government has exactly. no checks and balances. Oh, definitely, definitely, definitely. But what I'm trying to say is that we are both agreeing that there needs to be some sort of a check and balances. That's what I'm trying to get at. Of course, you call it a DRO because that's a better system. That's what we actually have in mind. You know, as you as you bring in you know, a lot of your books and stuff about the idea about what the civil wars were really about. They're basically they want a DRO. We want what democracy basically means. We want some sort of a you know a DRO where we actually can have some sort of a say. We can you know we, there's some sort of insurance or accountability or some sort, etc. But as you said, you know, the state as it is right now, there are no accountability, etc. And, and, and I guess that would probably be the same thing. It would be a, um, a, a free economy with, without any boundaries at all, but it would just be, that would be just as bad as having a government that doesn't take any, you know, that lets them have some sort of a, you know, um, uh, a voice to do whatever they really want and not get, and get away with it. Because um, as you're saying, you know, you can't just go, and there's a famous story about the guy that he has a boat He's on a boat and he buys his little cabin. He takes a drill and starts drilling in. And they say, "What are you doing?" And he says, "Well, I own I own this little area, so I'm just gonna drill it in." They don't realize that he's bringing down the entire boat. You know, so just the idea of, of saying, "I own this area. I'm a free free market. I have my own company, whatever it is." And then you're just gonna start wrecking up the whole air and all that. You know, we, I think we can both agree that that, that would be wrong. Uh, fine, I, we both also agree that the state is definitely not the, the solution. They're, they're basically like libertarians. Okay, sorry, um, sorry, really I got to interrupt you just because your, your line is so bad that people can't hear what you're saying, but I think I've got the gist right. of it, so let me give you a bit of response to that, and then uh, we'll, yeah. I'm going to have to move on to somebody else just because your line is pretty bad, so we're having trouble hearing you, but um, sure. uh, look, we've just talked about the corporation side of things. Mm-hmm. How many people do you think in the oil regulatory bodies, right, the, the, uh, the EPA or the, the uh, Occupational Health and Safety Administration, the people who are, mm-hmm. are responsible for policing these, um, uh, these oil rigs and, and in enforcing these health and safety standards, uh, how many of those do you think are going to lose their jobs? 
how many of those people do you think are going to lose their houses because they did not put the proper enforcement in and this disaster occurred? And in fact, mm. I will tell you what will happen is that because of this massive catastrophe in the Gulf, more people are going to get more jobs in these regulatory agencies. So far from there being negative repercussions to a catastrophic failure of oversight and management on the part of the government and on the part of BP, what is going to happen is the governmental budget for these organizations and the amount of control and power that they have is actually going to increase because people are going to say, well, we need more regulation because these regulations didn't work. So mm. by killing the Gulf, they've raised their paychecks, they've raised their power, they've expanded their control. It is a it's the complete opposite of any system you would ever design. You know, this is something I've thought of often. And I'll just touch on it briefly here as I maybe do a podcast on it. But, you know, people say about the DRO system or whatever it is that's going to be in a free market. Well, you know, there are all these problems. You design the system. What about this, this and this? Well, imagine if we were starting with a new planet, right? <laughs> starting with some completely blank page. And uh, people said, well, I want to create this monopoly of force and blah, blah, blah. And then you get these lobbyists and it's going to national debt and they control the currency and they ban counterfeiting because it interferes with their own counterfeiting and so on. Imagine the number of objections you'd be able to throw at that. It's like, well, but people can vote. But uh, who is it that they get to vote for? Well, the only people they'd get to vote for are the people who represent the special interests of the other people who donate the money for their campaigns. And uh, what would what would possibly stop people? Like they say, okay, well, there's a system where if there's a massive environmental catastrophe, the budget of the EPA gets bigger. It's like, well, that's the complete wrong incentive, right? How many people at the SEC even lost their jobs as a result of the Birdie Madoff ripoff, which was evident to anybody with 10 minutes and an abacus for many years beforehand? Mm -hmm. And in fact, the SEC received numerous letters from people. Uh, about the fact that the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme was uh, mathematically utterly impossible. And they did nothing for years, right? And billions and billions of dollars got hoovered up and stolen of people's life savings. Well, where's the liability? Did the people in the SEC lose their jobs? Did anybody lose their house because they had done a bad job? Well, I'll tell you, when I was an entrepreneur, I sound like some old guy on the porch. Ah, when I was a young whippersnapper. But no, when I was an entrepreneur... Uh, when we were starting out, uh, I was a poor <laughs> entrepreneur, and um, the uh, the managing partners of the company uh, that I was involved in founding, uh, we personally signed guarantees for tens of thousands of dollars of loans. And if we had failed, uh, uh, we would have ourselves been liable for these uh, for mm -hmm. these loans. And I was recently out of school without a lot of money. That would have been disastrous for me. I mean, it would have been really, really bad. I would have spent years and years paying off that debt. So that's my, that was my liability, right? That was my, uh, my liability and the liability of the other partners. That is something which really focuses <laughs> your attention uh, on, on quality. And so I know what it's like to labor under a great deal of risk and personal liability. And uh, it's really, um, it's not the same in these other organizations, it's not the same in uh, uh, government regulatory agencies, it's not the same in these corporate bloated monstrosities of legal avoidance. And uh, it is the, it, it's the, you couldn't design a worse system. So to me, it's always funny when, I'm not saying you, but when people come up with objections to a voluntary system, it's like, well, let's pretend we were designing a system from scratch and why don't you propose your system and I'll pick holes in it rather than just defending the status quo as if it's somehow normal and rational mm -hmm. rather than something that just developed like barnacles or a cancer. Why not? Why don't we, why don't we pretend that you're proposing your 
system. And let me poke holes in that because there's a hell of a lot more holes in violence than there is in voluntarism. So uh, you might want to exactly. try that as a uh, <laughs> as a debating tactic. Anyway. I have a, a quick question. It's, it's kind of a request for um, like expansion on an idea that I heard in a recent podcast. Sure. Um, in, I, I can't remember exactly which one. I think it was actually a couple of the recent ones where um, you said something uh, like uh, morality was uh, invented in order to control people. Yes. And um, this, uh, this is just like a, a really great, great question that um, a couple of friends and I, we spent like a couple hours <laughs> discussing and um, I wanted to know, because we were a bit confused on whether or not um, morality was something that was invented or something that was discovered. Hmm. That's, uh, that's, that's a good question. Tell me a little bit more about how you're using those terms. Well, yeah. Uh, like, if morality was invented in order to control people, like, I can see how... Um, like a system of morality would be invented to control people. Like, uh, for example, saying that, uh, like some leader or whatever has been, uh, get like given, uh, a system of ethics by, you know, some higher power and then passes it on to people as that would be like a system of morality. But the thing that we were confused about is, is whether or not morality is innate in people. Like, mm. Like as a, you know, some kind of like evolution uh, of our brains that kind of sets us apart from animals, which makes sense to me. Right. So whether it was like, like fire was discovered instead of invented, or if this system was more discovered. Ah, so that's a great question. I actually uh, did a podcast on this recently that I haven't released yet, so I'll I'll just touch on it here and then give you the chance to shoot holes in <laughs> the approach that I'm taking. And this is this is not empirical fact. It's I think there's evidence for it, but it's not it's not conclusive. Um, as I see my daughter grow, I can inc- I, I can see with blinding clarity the degree to which the human brain is intensely fine tuned fine-tuned to the development of concepts. Uh, it, it is just amazing. I mean, she's 16 months old, and uh, I think it was around seven or eight months she first understood that she enjoyed food being put into her mouth, and therefore uh, I would enjoy having food put into my mouth, right? So she started to, to feed me. She would take some food and, and give it to me. And that's an incredible thing uh, to me uh, for uh, for a baby to do because she has to recognize that uh, she and I are both human beings, that I have a, a head hole with teeth in the same way that she has a head hole with teeth, that, um, that, that food goes in and it's nice when it goes in, uh, and, and that her hand is the same as my hand, and that's what she uses to put the food in, in, the, in the mouth and so on. And that's, that's a, a strong degree of conceptualization. Now, of course, I understand also that uh, cats can do this with their young and so on, but, but this is a, a, an infant. And this has progressed... Uh, since then, uh, I mean, to, to, to give an example, right? So now uh, she can name just about all of her, her body parts, right? Uh, toes and, and, and fingers and, and elbow and arm and, and belly button and bum and all this kind of stuff, thigh and calf and, and uh, elbow and ears and eyes and nose and hair and all. She can do all of that sort of stuff. And when we first were teaching her that, uh, it was 
individual, right? So ear meant the ear that we were pointing at. And then ear meant both ears. And then ear meant her ears and our ears. And then ear meant a picture of an ear just on its own. So there was a continual process of extraction of the essence and extrapolation into concept formation that has been uh, working with amazing rapidity. And uh, I'm enormously uh, impressed by the research that has been done on the development of concepts and morality, even within uh, infants that is, uh, has been going on uh, over the last few years. And so I think that, I mean, I think there's very strong evidence uh, that, that human beings in a state of infancy have an incredible drive towards abstraction and universalization, to, towards the development of concepts. Now, that horsepower that is so innate to the development of our brains, I think, lends us to be naturally susceptible to definitions of goodness, of morality. So when you, I mean, the basic essence of morality is, uh, sorry, the basic essence of empathy is uh, I feel and others feel, right? So uh, when Isabella was first learning, uh, and this was an amazing thing to me, when she was first learning uh, her own eyes, well, of course, we had to say gentle. When she would go to touch her, her eye or her eyelid or whatever, we'd have to say very gentle. I didn't want to hold her hand away because that would just make her want to do it more. So we had to say gentle. And then when she began to identify our eyes, she was also very gentle. So she understood that her eye was sensitive and therefore our eyes were sensitive because we're both, uh, we're both human beings and, and uh, we, we sort of experience the same thing. And that to me is the foundation. I mean, if you don't have that, a basic empathy, and not, of course, everybody does. If you don't have that basic empathy, then all of your statements of morality are going to be mere manipulation, because if you don't have that basic empathy, it's all, it's all nonsense. Um, so I think that children, because of this incredible innate drive towards conceptualization and universalization, can really be thought of as UPB machines, uh, or definitely... UP, not necessarily the B, they're definitely universal preferences. Um, and the universalization from the instance is entirely what childhood development is, is all about. I mean, in terms of intellectual development. And so since the UP is there innately, putting the B on the end is very powerful, is very powerful. And, uh, and so I think that there was, uh, I think that your analogy of fire is very interesting. Like lightning strikes a tree, there's fire. And then you, you pick up the fire, and for a while you try and keep it going, then it goes out, and then eventually you figure out that if you rub two sticks together or whatever, then uh, or you find a Zippo lighter, then you, you can make your own fire. I think the innate drive towards universalization makes children enormously susceptible to definitions of morality, which are universal conceptualizations of uh, right treatment and good behavior and empathetic and so on, right? And so, I mean, when you look at the word selfish, which is something that is all too often thrown at children, you look at the word selfish, then selfishness is a UPB violation term because it's saying that you only care about your own feelings and you don't care about other people's feelings. In other words, you're creating a special category of entitlement for the satisfaction of your feelings, which is at the expense of other people's feelings, uh, which is invalid because we're all human beings and so on. And so that aspect of things is like when you call a child selfish, it's a UPB uh, violation. Uh, and uh, uh, when you're saying, you know, you, you never like to share, 
uh, that again, these are all UPB uh, violations because you like it when other people share. And so when children are criticized morally, what's occurring is you are saying to a child, there is something broken and bad about your concept formation machine, the concept formation machine in your head. And that is very alarming to children because if the concept formation doesn't work very well for children, they're enormously crippled in life, uh, as, as we can sort of understand from a variety of, of mental health issues. And so I think that children are very susceptible to the criticism of non-universality or the creation of special and exploitive categories just for themselves, you know, like selfish or whatever. And I think that is why morality is, uh, is, is so useful to people who want to control uh, others. And uh, so, uh, of course, and, and the last thing I'll say just very briefly is that the, the child uh, finds it very hard to penetrate that because the child is, is in a state of dependency. And the last thing the child wants to do is to provoke rage or abandonment on the part of the parent. And the problem with calling a child selfish is that that itself is a selfish action on the part of the parent, right? So you're, you're blaming a child for a UPB violation by using a UPB violation, right? Because if you're saying to a child, you're selfish, you're saying that you're preferring the satisfaction of your own preferences at the expense of someone else's. But if you're angry at a child and you call the child selfish, then that's negative for the child. Uh, so it's, it's acting on your own particular preferences at the expense of someone else's if you're the parent. And so you can't teach a child that UPB violations are bad by violating UPB, right? That's just not – so in other words, it's a selfish thing to tell the child that he's being selfish. And children don't really want to penetrate that because that, I think, provokes uh, a lot of upset on, on the part of certain parents. And children don't really want to risk that. So I think they just kind of go along with it. So I'm sorry. I hope that wasn't too uh, unbearably long a speech, but I think that uh, I think that was it. Yeah, Um I, that, that makes sense to me because, and that's kind of something that I was, I was thinking made, made more sense that it was like invented because, um, it's, it, it, it's sort of, uh, like a survival instinct to like seek approval. Um, so, so like if, if somebody says what you're doing is bad, that, that would trigger, you know, a, a lot of fear and, and would kind of like make you want to act, act in a good way. Right. <clears throat> Is that what you're saying? I'm sorry if, if you were more clear on that. And I, <laughs> I just didn't quite pick it up, but is, is that what you mean? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily approval that children are fundamentally after. I think children are fundamentally after conceptualization. And, and understanding of the physical properties of the world around them. And again, not to bore you with tales of my daughter, but at the moment she's going through a phase where um, what happens if this goes in water? <laughs> what happens if, if I, you know, she loves to be under a running tap and she basically wants to grab everything and see what happens when she runs water over it. She's trying to understand water because water is a very strange thing for her, right? It's neither a solid uh, nor a gas. Uh, like it's not intangible like air, but it's not a solid. Uh, it's not like gravel, which is kind of halfway between a solid and water. So she's really trying to to understand water. So I think children do have a drive to understand that. And she's able to conceptualize water very well, right? So we play with the sink and she sees water. I took her outside this morning to go to the park and there was a guy who was um, running his uh, – 
hose, uh, his, uh, you know, those sprayer things to spray the lawn, his lawn sprinkler. And she said water because she saw it flying through the air and glimmering and so on. So the drive is to, is to conceptualize that that's, I think that's first and foremost, but that very drive is harnessed through morality and through the desire to control through morality uh, for, for kids. And I think that is, uh, uh, that is a real, uh, that is a real challenge. Uh, that so if the kid is going to gain approval for conceptualization then they're going to be very pleased about that what often happens though is that a child will uh, uh, question or criticize the parent in terms of universality and the parent will react negatively it's not always but it's like a story that somebody i worked with once told me about his three-year-old son so his three-year-old son was going through a phase of throwing things and so he, the dad said uh, don't throw, right? And then the dad tossed a piece of paper into the garbage and his three-year-old turned to him immediately, you know, and said, wait, you said don't throw. And you just threw. And and that is the, the challenge of, of universality, right? And that is the challenge of giving people moral rules, right? Is that if you're going to uh, offer up moral rules, then you, I think, to that degree, lend yourself to be open to criticism for failing uh, for failing to meet them. And I think that's, uh, I think that what goes, and it's it's much easier to, to impose moral rules than it is to, to live by them. And I think that's the hostility that children fear is the pointing out of that hypocrisy if it's occurring. Right, yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So, And sorry, but I, I agree with you in that parental approval will generally trump anything else because without parental approval, the kid can't survive at all. So that's how we would have developed, I think, our susceptibility to that kind of feedback. Right. And, and just one, one thing that I'm still not, not entirely clear on is, um, like whether, whether or not that's, do you, do you think the, the kind of like innateness of, of like, uh, our sense of wanting to be good or bad is, is because of that, um, need to conceptualize or, yes, or do you uh, think absolutely. I'm sorry to interrupt, but, but yes, without it, and that I will say without a doubt, because, the reason that I know that it's out of our desire to conceptualize is that it is always put forward as a concept, right? Morality to children is always put forward as a concept. I mean, there are a few parents, I shouldn't say always, there are a few parents who will say, do it because I tell you to. But, but almost all parents will try to come up with some reason as to why the child should, quote, be good, right? And it usually has to do with universality, empathy, consistency, what I would call UPB. Now it's clumsy and it's it's uh, uh, it's uh, inconsistent and so on because I mean the moral framework is you know still to be propagated. I think something like UPB or something like it is still to be propagated so that we can explain to children what virtue is without resulting without resorting to uh, uh, aggression uh, or bullying from authority or uh, you know, threats or withdrawal or you know, punishments or whatever. Um, but uh, for sure, uh, children. Uh, it's always explained in terms of the universals. Uh, selfishness is universally bad, right? Uh, 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 hitting is, is universally bad. It's not like don't hit on Tuesdays. It's not like don't hit that kid, but you can totally hit that kid. It's always put forward as a universal, so I would say it has to be hooking in to the universal side. And most parents won't start out with because I told you to. Most parents, if they end up there, they end up there because they can't explain because like, they're getting peppered with questions 
right? And they can't explain or they start to approach their own hypocrisy if it's occurring. And they can't get any further. And then they say, well, just because I told you so. But they don't generally start there. Right, yeah. That that makes total sense. And I appreciate the clarification. Hey, I'm I'm glad it was clarifying. And, and if you listen to this and find that there's still stuff that's... It's a big topic. So if you find that there's stuff that's still unclear, please uh, bring it up again. Okay, thank you. Thank you. I mean, conceptualization... And the language that it generates is, is I think, our greatest evolutionary distinction and advantage. So uh, it is something that is, is very, very powerful. And I think, you know, the, uh, there's this new research about how early children can distinguish social rules from moral rules, right? Moral rules like don't hit, don't steal, versus social rules like you should hang your, your, your coat on this particular hook. Uh, there is a, um, uh, a modern development, uh, a development of research in more recent times about the degree to which children can master that stuff very early. But I think that parents and caregivers have always known this, which is why they start with, uh, with morality when children are very young. And I think that they really do get the degree to which children want to be, uh, want to be good. All right. We have time for another question or two or 2.3. If you like. Hello. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm just great. How are you doing? I'm uh, doing great. Um, uh, Steph, I, I, uh, my name's Jacob. I just wanted to... Uh, Jacob, are you uh, from the show Lost? Can you explain what the hell is going on in that show for me? I I, I don't know. Um, hang on just a second. I, I'm getting some feedback on the sound. You know, I, and also, I've never watched Lost, so I don't know. Oh, okay, good. Well, then you're not as lost as I am. <laughs> yeah. Okay, all right. I think I've got the sound situation fixed. Um, I had a, a, a question that uh, sort of uh, deals with a topic that, that uh, was going on earlier uh, with that first caller uh, who's talking so fast. Um, right, and if right. I'm talking fast, let me, let me you know, slow me down, please. Um, there was a, you talked about uh, corporations and, and the definition of corporations, and I think that's, that's um, a pretty sound um, idea of what corporations are anymore and, and, and have been in the past, you know, the East India Trading Company and so forth. Um, but I think that there's an economic definition of, of corporation that like Murray Rothbard uh, would have used that I think is a little bit more pro-free market. And I wanted to sort of throw this at you and, and just see uh, what you think. Okay, so can I present you a situation that, that maybe I think maybe Rothbard would have come up with? Please. Okay. Um, the idea of a corporation, just at its basic definition, is the idea that you've got uh, limited liability of owners of cap. So um, let's say you've got uh, you know some guy, and I'm going to give him ten dollars to run a business, and it looks like it might be a profitable business, and I sort of leave him to decide what he's going to do. And he goes and he takes my ten dollars, and he takes the ten dollars of a bunch of other people, and then he buys a gun, and he shoots somebody with it. I don't think that I should be held liable for what he did, especially if I didn't know, obviously. So you, um, just, you give him 10 bucks, he goes and shoots someone, buys a gun and shoots someone. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, you know, liability ends after I've had that sort of transaction with him. And he promises me to give returns, you know, give me in the future returns on his capital. I don't know if that's true or not. You know, you can't guarantee that. But I think that that's sort of like a small version of the kind of corporation that you might have in a free market, uh, the, the kind of, um, you know, sh- pooling of, of capital to build, you know, greater structures of capital and, you know, have a big firm and everything. 
and of course, you know, the executive, the guy that, you know, I gave the money to, uh, to help own the share, um, or to help buy, you know, the capital, he would still be responsible for any of the bad things he did. You know, if he shot people, if he, you know, drilled oil and leaked it everywhere, you know, of course, he would still be held responsible. I just don't think that I, the shareholder, should be held responsible. What do you think? Well, I, I agree with that to, to a large degree, but I don't believe that I mentioned anything about shareholders in my earlier speech. No, you didn't. And that's, and that's what I'm saying. I think that there's this definition of a corporation as a common holding of stock, as a shared uh, structure of capital that, you know, people that, that economists talk about, that like people like Murray Rothbard and Mises and Walter Block and all these folks, you know, they talk about a corporation as being that. Not, of course, not, of course, the kind of status corporations that you have with the Northrop Grumman's and the Boeing's and all these people. You know, just simply as a Go ahead. Well, no, I, so I, I understand this correctly. So let's say that, that I invest uh, $1,000 into uh, BP, and BP then turns the planet inside out pretty much and, and spills all this crap in the Gulf. Then uh, I can't be held liable for anything more, in a sense, than the loss of, of whatever portion of my investment that the stock goes down. Is that right? Yes, if you're not the executive and you're just the shareholder, yeah, exactly. Well, sure, because I'm not exercising any direct control over the corporation. I'm simply a passive investor. And so because I'm not making the decisions uh, as to whether or not there are backup systems in that oil rig, uh, I can't be held. I mean, wh where there's no authority, there can't be responsibility, right? And it, since I don't have right, authority exactly. to make those decisions, I can't be held liable for those decisions. However, of course, uh, I was more focusing on the executives uh, who were making those decisions, who, uh, in my mind, should be damn well personally liable for the results of those decisions, because that's the oh, only way to make people make better decisions. Of course, no disagreement at all. And, and I think that, um, I think you're absolutely right as far as that goes. I just think that, you know, there tends to be a, um, a, a blurring of, of uh, this idea when I talk to, you know, Marxists and then, you know, communists and whatnot, and I try to tell them that, you know, shared ownership of capital or ownership capital <laughs> of capital at all, you know, they, they wouldn't have any ownership, I guess, uh, is not a bad thing. You know, what, what is bad is when you've got violence and aggression and coercion and you've got, you know, the state coming in and, and shielding liability from executives. But liability of investors, I don't think is a big problem. Um, limited liability of investors, I don't think it's a big problem. And I think that if you had a, a market, you know, you would still have large corporations or maybe not huge ones, but you'd still have large firms, I think. And uh, go ahead. No, I, I, I quite agree with you that uh, in a free market, there would be uh, organizational structures which would be necessary to shield investors from uh, negative results of corporations. But to me, I mean, that certainly wasn't why corporations were put in place. Corporations were put in place so that if the corporation lost money, the debts would die with the corporation and it wouldn't touch the owners. I mean, that, that's the fundamental aspect of status corporations, as I understand it, is that uh, – uh, and I, I was very aware of this as an entrepreneur, right? So our choices when we were uh, going to get funding after our initial round of blood, sweat, and tears was, well, we could go to a bank – and we could get a loan uh, at a you know f fairly low percentage of interest if we had uh, any assets and higher interest if we didn't. But we would go to the bank and we would get a loan. Uh, or we could go to investors and then we would give up some equity and the investors would gain some uh, positive results uh, if we made money. But if we lost money and we went and the corporation went into debt, then uh, if, if we took out a bank loan and the corporation went into debt – we ourselves would be personally liable 
to pay back the bank, even if the corporation went went bust. But with investors, uh, that wasn't the case, of course. If the corporation goes bust, the debts die with the corporation and the investors lose their investment, but we don't have to pay them uh, anything back. And to me, that was the distinction. I don't know exactly where that would sit in a, in a free market. I mean, it's a really big and interesting question, the degree to which a stock market would function in a free market, in a truly free market. Uh, I mean, I know sure. that uh, von Mises said that uh, – oh, no, I think it was Rothbard who said that the one distinguishing aspect between socialism and capitalism was the functioning uh, stock market. But in my opinion, right, I'm, I'm no expert in, in any of these matters, but, but in my opinion, uh, I would say that the role of shareholders would be enormously diminished in, uh, uh, in a free market. Of course, a lot of people really? end up – Oh, hugely. There would be much, much less investment in a, in a free market for sure. Because investment uh, is risky and uh, investment is something that requires, if you're going to be good at it, it requires a fair amount of work. Why do people invest right now? Well, of course, most people invest because the money will be stolen from them if they don't, right? Most people end up with their money in the stock yeah. market for, for two reasons. One is because inflation is eating away the value of mm -hmm. their money. So they have to do something with it. Otherwise, they might as well just flush 3 to 5% of it down the toilet every year until it's all gone. So inflation draws a lot of money into the stock market. And of course, banks won't pay you any interest at all relative to much less than inflation. So that doesn't help you. And of course, with retirement savings plans in whatever form, and I think they're pretty much the same in many ways over, over the Western world, uh, if you don't put your money into the stock market, into approved investment vehicles, the government will simply take that money from you through taxation. And so right. there's a huge amount of money that's being herded into the stock market, which is great, of course, for the people who want to make a lot of money. Like the whole Wall Street thing is is surviving uh, almost entirely because the, of the amount of money that's being herded into the stock market and has been since this stuff kicked off, I think, in the 70s. How many people would want to go and invest a lot of money in a stock market when – like in a free market situation – when their bank would pay them a reasonable amount of interest and guaranteed interest, when they did not have to worry about losing money through through inflation, and when they did not, uh, uh, they weren't going to be taxed. The money wasn't going to be taken from them if they didn't put it in the stock market. I think that there would still, of course, be room for investors, but it would be a tiny, tiny percentage of what it is uh, right now, which I think would be entirely to the benefit. Uh, so I think it would be a much less important issue in a truly free market. Yeah, you'd, you'd only have uh, more risk-loving people doing it, and risk and risk-averse people would probably. Yeah, and it would be a job. Like it would be a, a you. You would do the research. I mean, nobody should invest in a in an in a a, um, a field or a company that they don't know anything about. And of course, most people just hand over their money to some financial advisor or some RSP, and they don't know where the hell their money's going or what it's doing. All they're doing is shielding it from the tax man and trying to get some money back through. Uh, to to ov offset the costs of uh, of inflation or the loss through inflation, uh, mm -hmm. and that's not. I mean, people wouldn't do that with their money in a, in a free market situation because there'd be no incentive. You you make your money, you hang on to it. It's going to get a small amount of interest and be perfectly safe in a bank, or at least mostly safe. And you're just not going to want to throw it into the casino of the stock market. There will be some people who will do it, and there may be some people who like it, but the majority of it would be a pretty tight professional or a way of of doing it and reviewing it. Of course, that's what you want. You want your shareholders – In ideally, you want your shareholders to be knowledgeable, to be proactive, to be invested. The, the larger amounts 
sorry, the smaller amount of larger investors that you have, the better off it is for the corporation uh, in terms of its longevity. If you have a million people each putting in a hundred bucks, they're not going to care what you're doing fundamentally because it's not worth their time, mm. right? So they're going to make five or ten bucks a year. And so they've got five or ten bucks worth of time value to invest in figuring out what your corporation is doing. But if you have, you know, a hundred people putting in ten, a hundred thousand dollars each, then they're going to be very interested in what's going to happen to that money or, you know, a hundred people putting in a million dollars each. And so what's happened now is because of the way that the money's all being herded into the stock market, you've got an enormous number of people with very small investments in companies. And so it's not worth any of their time to figure out what the hell these companies are doing. And so that would be a pretty negative situation in a, um, uh, in a free market. There would be larger investors and fewer of them. And thus there would be that much better oversight of the corporations. Yeah, and I think that uh, the few people, if you have few people investing, then that would drive up uh, the interest that they would pay on it. So it would probably be better paying uh, right. in addition you, to the yeah. greater risk. You know, if you have fewer investors, you're right. You, there would have to be more payoff to investors. And what that would mean is that the attraction of exposing yourself to personal risk through a bank loan would go higher, which I think would be better as well. I mean, at some point, it would end up that these two things would be relatively balanced out. Uh, right now, if you can get investment, it makes virtually no sense to take out a personal loan. Uh, whereas in a free market, these things as two options would end up being roughly equivalent and there would be particular things one way or the other that you might prefer. But um, uh, it would not be where it is right now that no sane person takes a loan if they can get investment. Sure. Um, I, I find this an interesting conversation. I, I remember one time you talked about how there's uh, – this is sort of getting off topic what we started with. Uh, there's uh, levels of conversation, and once you finally remove the gun and remove the uh, the knife out of the out of the conversation, it's not an argument about how deep we should stick the knife. You know, just get rid of the knife, and now we can have a real conversation. I, I appreciate you, uh, you know, that we can talk like this, and there's no knife, and we can find out uh, what might happen on the free market. Um, oh, I think so it would thank be you fascinating. Time. Thank you, and oh, I appreciate yeah. you bringing that up. And I just wanted to mention that uh, a listener who I trust enormously uh, has uh, mentioned that it was Mises who said that the difference between socialism and capitalism revolved around the functioning stock market. So thank you very much for, for pointing that out. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, man. It's a great, great question. And uh, I, I mean, I do find this stuff to be quite fascinating. I mean, you could write a 10-volume novel on life in a free market, and I think it would be just fascinating. But Oh, who has the time as it stands? <laughs> Not I, I will tell you. All right, I think we're just waiting for somebody else to be patched in. Sorry for the pause. It just helps me to take out uh, bits that uh, aren't going to be in the final version if I just leave them to be paused. Uh, sure, yeah. If you'd like to come back, Jacob, that would be great. Uh, uh, that would be fantastic. Um, we're just waiting for somebody else to come in, and of course, they have to accept the chat request and all that. So, go great. For it. Okay, well, I uh, hate to uh, monopolize the show. Um, I, I have uh, one other thing I'll throw at you, and this is maybe a little bit more contentious. I'm not sure. Um, it sort of gets gets back to the whole thing um, on uh, calling corporations corporations and, and all that. I really don't like to, um, you know, demonize the. Corporations, when arguing with uh, people who are um, for the state, because I think that we have a very good name for uh, an aggressive, uh, violent, um, you know, pro property disrespecting uh, entity, and that's called the government. So why should we call it big business? You know, it's not even really business. It's just you know theft and robbery. We don't call robbery business. 
it's not really a corporation like we would think of it on the free market where you've got you know all the, the shareholders and whatnot that we talked about. Um, so I, I really try to avoid uh, that uh, nomenclature. Um, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, look, language is language is really tough. Um, I just uh, watched a uh, a daily show where some guy came on about the, the end of the free market or the death of the free market or whatever. And the language is really, really tough. Uh, it's like the word anarchy, right? The word free market has been completely mutated over the past 150 or 200 years to mean state fascistic corporate capitalism. Uh, and even the word capitalism there becomes problematic. Uh, I'm just about nonviolence and property rights. I think those two things are pretty incontrovertible. Sorry, incontrovertible from a philosophical uh, standpoint. And from an economic standpoint, I think it's it's pretty uh, pretty compelling as well. So it is really tough. I mean, when people say I'm against capitalism, a lot I see this happen to objectivists on the web all the time. When people uh, say I'm against capitalism, and the objectivists say no, capitalism is good, they're just talking past each other. Uh, and um, then if you defend capitalism, it's like you're a big fan of uh, pollution and the exploitation of Singapore children to stitch threads on the Nike clothing. So I uh, I find it's very useful to not assume that these terms mean the same to others as they do to me. Uh, and it is uh, it is definitely fighting a quicksand fog machine to to get this stuff because when you start asking for definitions, uh, people generally get kind of oogie on you, right? Because they they get that they're treading on a cloud of propaganda and they don't want to stick their foot through and feel like they're going to fall forever. So right, I agree fact. with you. It's a real challenge when it comes to language. But uh, what's your solution to, to the problem or your approach to that problem? Well, actually, I, I have this um, conceptual um, idea that, that I've been uh, – kind of but uh, I've got this idea that I've been trying to throw out and uh, trying to uh, package. Maybe you can help a little bit. Um, one of the things that, that uh, I hate about um, our side – is that anytime we talk about you know how the market could solve things and this that and the other, and uh, you know the Marxists or whoever will say, oh well you know look how well ca uh, capitalism is done and like you say you know they're talking past each other, and I say well you know that's that's not really capitalism that's or that's at least you know that's not free market that's not voluntarism, and the person will say oh well you know you're just uh, falling to the no true Scotsman fallacy are you familiar with the no true Scotsman uh, fallacy? I don't believe I am, but uh, so if you could explain it, that even if I might be, but but I don't think that the listeners would be. So go for it. Okay, uh, the idea is that uh, you've got it's sort of like a moving the goalposts. Uh, what it is is, um, you know, uh, McDonald opens up the Edinburgh Times newspaper and he sees that a a Scotsman has been charged for having uh, intercourse with a sheep, and and the uh, and McDonald says, oh, you know, no true Scotsman would uh, would ever do that, uh, or no Scotsman would ever do that, is what he said. And uh, the next day, um, uh, you know, he sees uh, another uh, issue of the paper that says a guy from Edinburgh who's a Scotsman was charged, with, you know, with uh, having intercourse with a sheep. And he said, well, no true Scotsman, you know, the definition of true. And so, so it's sort of moving the goalposts. And so, whenever I say to uh, to a statist, well, you know, this is not true free market, this is not, you know, that's not what you're talking about. Um, the person will say, well, you, you're just sort of moving the goalposts, you're, you're falling to the no true Scotsman principle. And I, and I, I think I, I figured out a way to take care of that as well as uh, take care of the idea of a definition of a true free market. And I think that's simply to recognize that, um, and there's a quote, I, I forget who it is, I'm sure somebody will, will think of it, 
but uh, I think that you know that there's a uh, public sector and then there's a private sector. There's the violent sector and there's the voluntary sector, um, and you know those things sort of coexist at the same time. You know, like uh, I guess sort of um, everyday anarchy um, talks a little bit. Well, I mean, I guess that's sort of what it's about. You know, whenever we talk to each other or or you know go dating or whatever, you know, that's that's a uh, that's an anarchic relationship. That's a private relationship. Uh, and I think what we need to draw a distinction is that, you know, we are rich. We do have a lot of stuff um, anyway. And there's a lot of, you know, cool things that have all come about because of uh, private, the private sector. And we, the only reason we don't have more is because of the public sector. So I think that when we talk about the, the wonders that capitalism has brought us, I think that uh, a lot of people need to keep in mind that, you know, that's one part of human action. The other part of human action is just violent and, and wealth destroying and, and all that. Um, so I'm sort of throwing that out there. I don't know if I'm just mumbling. Rambling. No, I mean, I, I think that's good. I, I think that the, the words the thing, words like capitalism or, or socialism or mixed economy or you know, government management or regulation and all, all of these things are, to me, they're, they're balaclavas over the, over the thief, so to speak. I think that for me, it's always important to not speak about the complex effects of simple abstractions, but rather to, as you say, go, go to the root and say, well, uh, what is the definition of this, uh, of this behavior? And, and there's lots of ways you can do it. I mean, I've had conversations with people who say that the government needs to regulate Wall Street. And to me, it's like, so the entity that's trillions and trillions of dollars in debt will be responsible for, for the financial management of others. I mean, isn't that like giving the drunk the keys to the distillery and saying, make sure that nothing gets drunk? Uh, so there are lots of ways that you can approach this, but I think, I think it needs to boil down to these fundamental things. When, whenever anybody is proposing social organization, which involves force, the initiation of force, I think it's foundational to understand that they are fundamentally claiming an extraordinarily deep knowledge of ethics, of virtue of good and right and true behavior. Like if somebody is saying we should, the government should censor hate speech or whatever, right? Then what they're saying is, I know how violence should be used to better society. How, I know how violence should be initiated to, for the betterment of society. Well, that's an extraordinary claim to make. That is an extraordinary claim to make. And if you're saying that you, you know, if somebody's saying, I know how to initiate force to make society better, that person to me is making unbelievably complex, detailed, and far-reaching claims about their knowledge of morality. And, uh, and of every, everything else as well. I mean, you know, how yeah, to know and, how and of human nature and of economics and of motivation and so on. I mean, the, the wonderful thing about the anarchic position is, is its humility. Because the anarchic position is saying, I don't have the balls or the idiocy to say I know how to use violence to achieve good. I just, I don't. I watched, maybe I watched that Mickey Mouse cartoon where he tries to use the sorcerer's spells to, con to get the, the, the washing all done for him and it all goes disastrous. But that to me is, I, I don't have the megalomania to think that I can tell society how to organize itself at the point of a gun. I think that is, I mean, I just, I don't have the confidence 
for that in any way, shape, or form. And I think it's the humility of the anarchic position that is very tough for people. Uh, everybody loves to boss everybody around, at least in the current world. That seems to be endemic to human nature. Everybody has an opinion about how everybody else uh, should live. And if if somebody says to me something like the state should regulate Wall Street, that says to me at the very surface level, it's usually not true. In fact, it's almost always not true. But it says to me at the surface level, I have an incredibly deep understanding of the state, of the uh, of the market system that we have, of financial firms, of existing regulations, of how they have failed. Right? Because everyone says, oh, well, the reason we had all these problems was because regulation collapsed under Bush. It's like, well, what's the proof of that? Where's the reason and evidence? Very quickly, you find that people are just manipulating words like magic spells. They're not, they don't actually have any fundamental knowledge about any of these things. They're just reading something. They're just repeating something that they heard someone say on CNN or read in the New York Times or whatever. They're just repeating nonsense that they don't understand. They're just manipulating words. And when you catch people doing that, they generally get quite upset. So this is one of the challenges, of course, of taking the philosophical approach to life and starting with definitions. And this goes all the way back to Socrates, right? And people would say, well, it's unjust to do that. And Socrates would say, wow, if you're able to apply justice to this situation, you must have an extraordinarily uh, deep and wise understanding of justice. So perhaps you can tell me what your definition of justice is. And of course, they'd be like, bah, 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 you bastard, have some hemlock, right? I mean, that's, uh, that's the nature of the beast. And so when someone says, I know how to use violence to achieve goodness, I'm going to ask them what their knowledge of, uh, where their knowledge of virtue comes from. What is their definition of virtue? Do they understand the difference between voluntarism and violence? What is their relationship to violence? And of course, you know, 999 times out of a thousand, you would just get a whole bunch of hostile or distracted or avoidant nonsense coming back your way. And that's tragic. But uh, unfortunately, that is the fog that we have to work with. Sure, absolutely, and 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 uh, I think that's especially true. You know, what's sad is is some of the biggest arguments I've had are with people who are nominally on our side. Um, you know, people who uh, maybe even claim to you know go so far as to claim to be voluntarists and and anarchists and stuff, and uh, and they'll say, um, well, you know, coercion uh, that's the same thing as manipulation. So if you've got a smarter person and a dumber person. Well, the smarter person convincing a dumber person is, is actually coercion. Of course, I guess they have no idea what persuasion is. And, uh, and that reminds me of the, the first caller you had today who said, you know, the free market has to have smart people or whatever. Um, you know, I, that, that makes me uh, cringe to think that, you know, people don't realize that, that persuasion is not the same thing as coercion. You know, so-called manipulation is not the same thing as uh, hitting somebody over the head and telling them what they have to do. Yeah, I mean, wearing Spanx isn't the same as raping someone, right? <laughs> Putting on makeup is not the same as, right? I mean, there's a fundamental difference between um, yeah, taking somebody hostage to give you a job is not the same as printing your resume on nice paper, shaving and wearing a suit, right? I mean, those are all designed exactly, to manipulate right. impressions, but the fact that people have a, a great deal of trouble with this, I mean, to me, there's some, there's an important kernel of truth in that, in that there seems to be very strong evidence that, say, verbal abuse for children is even more harmful in the long run than physical abuse. So I, I assume that when I, this is just my take on it. I don't have any concrete proof. But when somebody says to me, uh, verbal manipulation is the same as 
as, uh, uh, as as physical violence, I simply assume that they experienced verbal abuse as a child. Now, that doesn't mean that they did. It's just my assumption. I'll try and figure that out with them because it, it's just such an irrational position to take from an empirical and logical standpoint that there must be some reason why uh, why they believe it. And this idea, of course, that that society is full of you know greedy people who need to be controlled by a central authority is most people's view of school and parenting and church, you know, that the children are just kind of random and need to be controlled and managed by a central authority called a parent and, and all that. And I, I haven't found that to be true as a parent at all. In fact, quite the opposite is true. Uh, but, uh, and this is sort of why I say that we have to, we have to reform the family before we can get uh, a, a free society. Right. Because that's a kind of treatment of children is exactly how these statists would want to treat adults. You know, you don't know what's best for you. You can't make decisions about your own values. You have to be told what you like and what you should not like or what you should have choices amongst. Oh, yeah. And, and to me, it's, it's, very, very, it's a very, it's a very uh, astute observation, I think. And I also wanted to just follow that up by saying that uh, w- when you start to see the degree to which family metaphors are used to support social hierarchies, I mean, it's, it's such an obvious thesis. It's almost, it's almost embarrassing to actually point it out, right? I mean, it's the founding fathers, right? I mean, so they're using the metaphor of father. A priest is called father, right? God is the father. Virgin Mary is the mother. Jesus may be the brother. I don't know, right? But, but, uh, the, the degree to which, uh, and, and when people say, well, if you don't, if you don't like, like the rules in this country, you should leave. Well, that's exactly the same as, you know, well, if you don't like the rules in this house, young man, you just, you can move out. Right. I mean, the idea that the government owns the land and we live here if we obey the government is exactly the same as the bad parent argument that uh, I pay for everything in this house. And when you live under my roof, you will do you will live by my rules. That is uh, uh, all uh, that there's there's so many precedents to the way that uh, status and, and statism approaches the the hierarchy of, of power in society that uh, if people who don't see that as coming from social, uh, family organization and exploiting the existence of a family organization, and then it, it perpetuates itself, I, I think that's quite a willful misunderstanding of, of the basic way that statism is justified. That's a, that's a pretty disturbing uh, and insightful um, uh, insight right there. That, that Yeah, I think you, you got it right on. That is pretty disturbing, though. How so? Well, I mean, just, you know, it's, it's scary to think about that. I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but yeah, that's a, that is exactly uh, how people treat it. I mean, people really do even call, you know, even the names of uh, these people who want to control you are, are called, you know, father and, and whatnot, or fatherland, motherland, I don't know. That's, uh, no, you're right, fatherland uh, and motherland, uh, and that uh, generally uh, fits in, right? So in Germany, it's more of a patriarchy, so it's called the fatherland. And in Russia, it was more of a matriarchy, and that's called Mother Russia. Uh, the motherland, right? So there is a um, uh, uh, there is a an incredibly strong correlation uh, about the metaphors that are used in society, and and how could it be otherwise? It's not like it's not like our parents are going to discipline us when we're two years old by saying I'm like the government because we don't know what the hell the government is when we're two years old, right? But the government will say uh, we'll we'll hook into what's happened to us as uh, as children. Uh, the government will hook into it. Uh, when it's older, and it will hook into stuff that is similar to the way that we are raised. But it can't happen the other way, because children respond to what is immediate before they respond to what is conceptual. And so it would have to go. It would have to go from the parents. It would have to go from the family to the state. It, it couldn't conceivably go the other way. And so you don't refer to your father as uh, as the president, right? Because you don't know what the hell the president is. 
a president is. But you will refer to the people who founded your country as the founding fathers because you already know what a father is. And it, it even struck me, and this may be a bit of a reach, but I, I think it's true, right? The, 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 I mean, the wife of the president is like the, the mom, right? And, and she's called the first lady. And what is the first, the, who is the first lady that we all meet is our own mothers, right? So it even to me ties in at that level, though I'm not saying that's, that's obviously not conclusive, but I, it just struck me the other day that there does seem to be that uh, similarity. And when you, when you start to see that kind of stuff, uh, it is, uh, uh, it, it is really, really clear. Corporations, as I've sort of mentioned, come into the sibling area and the government is supposed to be the parent who controls the sibling from being mean to us. And, uh, I just, that, that to me is with the level that most people, uh, are, are working at. That's, that's an interesting insight. Yeah. That's right. But uh, tell me, well, if you don't mind, uh, just while we wait for the next person, uh, if you tell me a little bit more about what's, uh, what's disturbing, I do find that, uh, I mean, to me, it's, it's good news, right? Because if, if we've missed something important in the freedom movement, like the effect of family upon people's belief in the state, that gives us something to do. Whereas if it's not that, and maybe it's not, maybe I'm completely wrong about this and it's something else, but, uh, uh if we, if it's the one thing we've avoided, but it's the one thing that will work, that to me would be good news. Because if we are out of options, right? Politics isn't going to work. Uh, argument doesn't seem to work. Education doesn't seem to work. Free books don't seem to work. Uh, you know, websites like Mises or FDR don't seem to work. If there's something that we have missed that's troublesome to look at, to me, that's, I mean, I understand it's disturbing, but it's really good news because it means there's something that we can still do. But if, uh, 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 if it's not that, or th- then I'm not sure what else we can do. If that makes any sense. Uh, no, I hear you. Um, now the disturbing comments. Uh, I just meant it as uh, you know. It's it's it's. Uh, maybe I should have said strange that they would you know that, that uh, these people would take that kind of language onto that kind of thing, and, and I think it really does you know show an insight into the two connections, like you say, um, where you've got this. Uh, Controlling upbringing that, that that translates very well to a controlling uh, adulthood. Um, but I have to disagree with you about, uh, however, uh, websites not working because if it wasn't for your website and uh, and Mises and all of those others, I don't think I would be uh, an anarcho-capitalist right now. So works for at least one person, right? I mean, that's uh, an empirical data point. Uh, right. uh, no, you're you're absolutely right, and and I apologize for not being even remotely clear, and and thank you very much for for pointing that out. What I mean is that the amount of activism that has been poured in, I mean, all the way back from Socrates 2,500 years ago to the rise of classical liberalism 150 or 160 years ago, uh, it has not translated into managing or controlling the size and growth of the state. Uh, so in, I agree with you at an individual level, it can certainly work towards enlightenment, but it hasn't worked as yet at a social level to to reverse the trends that we all find so troubling. So you, you, thank you for that clarification because I was completely not clear about that distinction. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I have nothing else to contribute. All right. Thanks. Uh, Jimmy P., we had somebody else who was uh, lurking and waiting. Yes, Mr. B. in the call list. Mr. B., Hey. Hey. Can you hear me now? I sure can. Okay. Oh, yeah. Let me know if um if I need to turn it up or down or anything. That's yeah, good. I appreciate you. Cool. I appreciate you taking my call. I uh yeah, I've been listening to you for uh heck, probably two years now or something like that. I I you know, I really appreciate what you're doing and uh giving me a chance to talk to you like this. This is awesome. I'm excited about it. Um I feel kind of funny about what I'm about to say, I'm, it's kind of like I got a guilt complex about like uh, my preference of you know the opposite sex. Like uh, 
I'm just flat out say it. Like, you know, I guess I'm more attracted to skinny girls than overweight girls. And um, I'm wondering if that's like something society has kind of superimposed on me and or if that's like uh, superficial and wrong of me to be like that. I, uh, you know, I, I feel guilt over it. And uh, I don't know if that's unfounded or. Um, No, that's uh, I, look. I appreciate it. I think that's a very, very interesting question. Um, to some degree, I think it's fairly true that there, uh, the definition of what is attractive certainly changes, right? I mean, you can look up Rubenesque uh, on the web and look for look for art galleries, not some of those other sites, I'm sure. But uh, uh, to to be overweight was considered to be very attractive uh, in general, and this is just my nonsense theories, right? But in general, it seems to be that whatever is the exception tends to be more attractive. So when food was scarce, then being overweight, which was rare, became uh, more attractive. Now that food is plentiful, the exception is to be thin, uh, and therefore that becomes more attractive. Uh, for instance, um, uh, if you look at Humphrey Bogart, right, he looked like a bunch of pieces of wet noodles strapped to a chestless wonder. Uh, to, to, for Humphrey Bogart, uh, when physical labor was the norm, uh, then uh, muscles and a tan was considered to be uh, unpleasant and, and unattractive because it was so common. But now that uh, working in an office is the norm, then muscles and a tan indicate that you have some leisure. And it's all about what is excessive or what you have access for. So uh, if you look back sort of the movies of the 40s and 50s, nobody had any muscles and they all looked like Casper the Friendly movie ghost, right? But now to have muscles and to have a tan is considered, you know, you have the leisure time to go and do a beach into a gym. And, and so that now has become uh, considered to be uh, – now we have six packs and before it didn't, it didn't matter because I guess you never saw them without their shirts on or whatever, right? And so there, these things do change over time for sure. And that, that's not to say that there are no standards of beauty. I mean, for instance, a, a physically beautiful face uh, seems to be pretty widespread. Like most cultures will say that face is more beautiful than that face. And it has to do with the evenness of the features, which indicates uh, a good spread in the gene pool, which means that if you have sex and have children with somebody who has a good gene pool spread, in other words, they're not inbred like the royal family – then you have less of a chance of, of those, those mutations occurring, which require two pairs of, I think, DNA or chromosomes or whatever to, to pair up. So there are evolutionary advantages to preferring things like, you know, uh, uh, round hips and full breasts and, and shiny hair. And uh, in men, uh, baldness, I think, is the only thing that is uh, evolutionarily adaptive for ultimate male beauty. Maybe there's something else. I don't know. But um, All right. Yeah. yeah. Well, Sorry. I got I hair, <laughs> down, hair down halfway down my back, so I... Uh, I have hair halfway down my back, too. Uh, that's just the only... <laughs> but I anyway, yeah, so so uh, there, there's some objectivity to sexual attraction, it seems. There is definitely some cultural standards and some uh, subjectivity. But um, uh, tell me what it is that, that uh, uh, you mean by thinness. I mean, do you mean, like... Kate Moss uh, can slip in through a mailbox if she doesn't have a key kind of thing, or, or what are we talking about? Oh, no. oh, you know, just um, anything from average to, you know, just not like, you know, obese, I guess. Uh, and um, my situation now is um, there's this girl I've been hanging out with a lot, and, you know, she's really neat and fun to be around and stuff. But um, the only really problem I have is uh, that she's overweight, and it's just um, – 
hanging over me like a wet bag, you know, like uh, as far as, oh. If it actually was hanging over you, then uh, <laughs> this conversation might be somewhat redundant and no. actually quite inappropriate in the moment. But uh, All right, uh now, uh, is it, are you are you yourself? Uh, I mean, do you uh, are you athletic? You like to sort of are you very active? Is that uh, uh, is that? I'm very skinny. Uh, no, I don't really exercise that much. Like, but do you sort of like to walk or or play sports or anything like that? No, I guess not play sports, right? No, no, I'm a you know, no, I'm not really into any sports at all. I played soccer my youth, but that's about it, really. And um. Yeah, because I mean, really there just... could be a, I mean, there could be a compatibility issue. I mean, if you're really into sports, then somebody who's overweight probably wouldn't be able to to participate, right? So there would be something less that you could sort of do together, right? So there could be some sort of more practical uh, uh, issue there. I understand. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't really think that's the case. Like, um, for some reason, I have it in my head that everything is going good with this girl, and she's great, and everything. The only thing is, you know. Uh, She's overweight, and it's uh, it's not something I can get out of my my head. It's like causes me to uh, to resist. And my whole thing really is, um, you know, I'm afraid to uh, commit to anything because there might be something else out better out there. Is one big thing I'm kind of thinking I need to overcome, or or uh, that's just from what I've read is like a characteristic of personality types um in the anagram i don't know if you're familiar with that or um but that you know that's like a negative trait in the individualist personality type um but um i mean that's really kind of uh trying to justify it in my mind so sorry are you saying that you you, you might be romantically attracted to the woman if she weren't overweight oh uh, yeah and it's, uh, now, I, I mean, to what degree are we talking overweight? I mean, eight hundred pounds, or you know, whatever. Oh no. Well, um, I'd say close to, you know, up there in the a hundred something, like maybe close to two hundred. I guess I'm not really sure. I, but um, you know, it's it's significant. Right. Right. Um, do you know why uh, why she's overweight? Well, you know, people are overweight for sometimes reasons they can't control. I understand that, and you know I don't really hold her to any fault for her weight or lifestyle choices, or you know if that even has anything to do with it. Um, but really, it's like a preference of mine. Even though I have a great time with her, enjoy. I, we have some really good conversations uh, talking about some of the stuff you talk about too. She's uh, I introduced her to your videos, and um, you know it's great to have somebody in person you can actually talk to about stuff like this because you know it's such a rarity, really. Um, have intellectual conversations with people. I, I live in South Carolina. That might have something to do with it, but, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, everything should be great. It's just, uh, my, um, I don't know if it's a preconceived notion I got from too much television or, you know, society in general telling me overweight people aren't attractive or I don't know, uh, Right. No, I'm I understand. Kind of silly about it. No, no, it's it's not silly at all. I I completely understand. I mean, I I, I appreciate you bringing this up. I mean, it's it's a challenging topic, and I'm just going to, of course, give my nonsense opinions about it. But um, there is um, I, the first thing that I would do if if you're friends with with the girl is um, 
the, I would talk to her about her relationship to food, her relationship to weight, and, and, and what she thinks and what she feels. I mean, if you're friends, right, and if you're close. Uh, and that wouldn't be any sort of prelude to a romantic thing or whatever, right? But I think uh, that's important. Um, I'm certainly no nutritionist or expert, but I think my understanding is that the number of people who are overweight for reasons that they can't at all control, uh, there's very few people uh, who are in that uh, uh, who are in that category. Now, being overweight is not always bad for your health, but it usually is something that is worth looking at and trying to to manage or or control, uh, if at all possible. Uh, there have been some studies that I've read that have said that you know being overweight is not bad for your health. There have others been said that it is. It certainly can be tougher on your joints. It can be tougher on your knees, of course, uh, and your lower back, and so on. So uh, if I were you and I was you know wanted to get to know this this person better, uh, I would ask you and say, hey, what's what's your relationship with food? I mean, what's your relationship with weights? And to me, that's a very important and interesting question to ask just about everyone. I mean, we all have complex relationships with food for better or for worse. And uh, I think it's an interesting question to ask just in terms of, uh, of getting to know someone. I think that's, uh, that's an interesting thing to ask. It may be that you will find something out about the person that is, is, uh, it gives you some understanding, uh, some knowledge of it. Maybe her talking about it might help her uh, look at these issues with more clarity. Sometimes weight can be, or our relationship with food can be a bit of a guilty secret that people have and so on. So, uh, if you like the person as a friend, if you like the woman as a friend, my suggestion would be to no, ask her, you know, and, and if she gets really upset, then maybe don't, but uh, don't continue. But I think it would be something that would be uh, would be interesting to talk about. And uh, you never know where that, convers- uh, where that kind of conversation might uh, uh, might move. Well, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I, you know, the last thing I want to do is make her feel uncomfortable and or anything or make her feel like I'm rejecting her because of that reason, even though that might be closer to the truth um well no i wouldn't but i wouldn't talk about your thoughts and feelings i would ask about her thoughts and feelings okay right it wouldn't be like well because you know if you were thinner (laughs) uh, i I would just ask her about her thoughts and feelings uh or if you have i mean i think we all have something to do with food that's interesting uh so you could talk about your uh, relationship i don't mean issues or problems but your relationship with food and so on uh, and uh, you could just bring the conversation around that way. I think, I think our relationship with food is is interesting and challenging and complex in in many ways. Uh, people use food for a lot of different reasons that don't have anything to do with, you know, nutrition and 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 survival. And uh, yeah. I think it can be, and this I think is more true uh, for women in many ways, uh, or in some cases, than it is for men. Uh, men, of course, do do other things, but I think I think it's it's an interesting topic. To, to chat about with friends is relationships with uh, with food uh, and with health. Uh, I, I'm really seeing this again. I bring out my daughter in every context, but I can see this with my daughter. She goes through these phases where she's growing a lot and she eats a lot and then she doesn't eat much. And it's like, oh, is she okay? And it's like, because she's just not hungry. When she's full, she's full. And uh, that is a really great thing. She doesn't, obviously, she's not a stress eater because she doesn't really have any stress. And, and so it's really interesting to see our sort of original relationship with food, which is that it's nice and it's tasty. And when you're full, you're full and she doesn't snack and so on. And uh, to see how that changes sometimes when we become adults, I think it's uh, it's interesting. I think there's a lot of fertile intimacy ground to be covered when talking about relationships with food. And I think, again, not to sound overly uh, sexist, if this is even sexist, but I think it's uh, it's more true sometimes for women than it is for men in terms of the complexity and challenge of the relationship with food. Well, I appreciate you talking to me and taking the time to, you know, uh, give me some insight on that. I, you know, um, I, uh, 
I really enjoy the the videos you've been making. You know, here fairly recently about um, childhood and you know the, the brain, the bomb in the brain series was great. I was just fascinated by that. You know, um, Gabor Mate and you know, I just really appreciate all you're doing. Um, thank you so much for thanks. You know, I appreciate you listening. I appreciate that. kind words. And the last thing that I would mention is that. Um, uh, and this is uh, an older guy's perspective. You certainly don't sound like you're you're my age, so I'm assuming that you're younger. But what, what I will say is that when you want to settle down and uh, and have kids, if 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 you want to settle down and have kids, uh, yeah. you, you got to choose the best mom. You got to choose the best mom for your kids. Um, I, I don't mean to sound crude, right? But there's a statement, and I can't even remember who who made it. But um, uh, it, it goes something like this. Uh, for every beautiful woman in the world, there's some guy who's tired of screwing her. Right? I mean, and, and I, think, yeah. I can't remember. Somebody else said something like uh, the attraction of physical beauty lasts about three days. Right? After three days, it becomes about the person, not about the pretty. And uh, we have just, you know, man to man. Right? I mean, I think it's safe to say that we have dual reproductive drives right and and the one is bang the prettiest thing that moves and and i think that's that's a short-term reproductive strategy that's just around scatter your seed to the healthiest looking female possible uh and and that's something that i think we all have within us uh but it's not a wise course to take uh, in the modern world it may have been fine in the bronze age or maybe even the stone age but not in the uh in the computer age i think when you are looking at a longer term relationship, right? Not just, you know, let's, uh, let's hang out and, and let's have sex and let's go to clubs or whatever, right? But when you're looking for a longer term relationship, a deeper relationship, a relationship that hopefully will see you through, um, the challenges of, of parenting and aging and all those kinds of things. You are choosing for your children, right? When you choose who it is that you're going to, to marry or, or have kids with, you're choosing for your children and given that they don't have a voice in who you choose i think you have to choose with with your children in mind and uh, so if the woman is overweight but she's a great mom she is well then i think that's that's that that to me is a very very important consideration uh i think that uh, uh, beauty is something that that if you read the right person it grows on you, as I've sort of said before. My wife and I were not smitten with each other physically when we first met at all. But uh, after the first time we went out together, which was a complete accident, everybody was, on the volleyball team was supposed to come, but people were just unable to make it. So we ended up going out alone. After that, we just, you know, we just didn't separate until we got married 10 months later. And it's been, I guess, seven or eight years now. And it's, uh, it's better every single day. And, uh, you know, there's, a couple of phases of falling in love, right? There's the phase of, of lust and, and, and uh, all that kind of stuff. And then the phase of uh, a genuine affection and deep appreciation. And then there's love. But the huge cascade of love for me uh, came uh, when I, I get to see my wife being a mom. Because she is, oh, I mean, she is just the most amazing and patient and kind and positive and fun uh, mom, uh, I just took a video of her the other day of her waltzing with Isabella in the mall and Isabella just giggling away. It is just the most a beautiful thing to see. And uh, when your precious child is being uh, uh, is, is, is laughing with delight and joy. And the moment that Christina comes home, if I'm playing with Isabella, she 
hurls me to one side <laughs> like like a spent banana peel and races straight towards mom. Uh, that is uh, an absolutely beautiful thing. And that, I don't think, fundamentally has anything to do with the amount of meat on your bones, but the amount of meat yep. in your heart, so to speak. So I think that it's really, really, really essential if you're thinking of having kids uh, or just thinking of growing old with someone, that you pick someone uh, who is going to be the greatest and most positive and beautiful center piece of the family that you can find because that just makes an enormous difference between happiness and joy and misery. I mean, there's no bigger decision in your life as an adult than who you get married to if you're going to get married and particularly if you're going to have kids. Uh, people, uh, we just did a, a podcast on this about divorce. Uh, people's ships go straight into the rocks if they marry the wrong person. And that's bad enough if it's just you. But if you have kids, too, it's a complete disaster. So depending on where you are in life and depending on you know how this woman is and what you're thinking of, uh, I would really focus on what's it going to be like. Uh, how is she going to be with my precious children? And I think that is uh, that is a very, very important standard. And that that takes a little bit of the shallowness out of it. And I'm not saying you're being shallow. I'm just saying that that is a very, very important aspect of it. Well, I appreciate uh, you saying that. I, you know, uh, gives me some great insights and some stuff to think about. I, I really appreciate it. All right, thanks, man, and uh, thank you, everybody. Of course, so much for joining us here on this fine, fine day, sixteenth of May, uh, twenty ten. I look forward to chatting to the Spanish folks in Malaga, who I think are getting together next month. But um, uh, and I wanted, of course, to thank everybody so much for your wonderful comments, suggestions, uh, criticisms, and feedback. And uh, I, uh, I really do uh, look forward to meeting anybody who can uh, make it up uh, for Labor Day uh, to, to chat with us all. And uh, have yourselves a completely wonderful week. And uh, I will talk to you soon.